good morning to you all. It's good to see you. I thank you for having me here both uh, this weekend and, of course, this morning. I have really enjoyed my time. Uh, I uh, have, have really greatly profited and been blessed uh, over the years from my time spent with your pastor. And this weekend was no exception. We are kindred spirits and spend a lot of time reading, laughing, talking, and yes, eating together. Um, so he is a festal soul. So I know that you will all resound with some of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning. I thought it would be worthwhile since this is my last time, kind of in terms of our, uh, our conference this weekend, to t- pull together some of the threads that I've talked about and talk sort of centrally about what festivity is and how important it is for the people of God. I've been, throughout the weekend, fleshing out some of the sources, the foundations for what festivity is, and I'm going to turn my attention to kind of talk about it directly this morning. So my, my Sunday school is titled, Let Us Keep the Feast. And uh, I, I want to begin by just telling you about something that was important for our own church we have a, a, an Easter fest every year that is usually celebrated somewhat close to Pentecost and during the Easter season as a way of helping us remember that Easter is not just one day, but it extends throughout a season in which we contemplate and think about what the resurrection means. And so we have a festival, and it's important, I think, for the festival to be very creational, worldly in that sense, that we play games and we eat food and we have a great deal of fun together, remembering that Christ rose from the dead in a body, and that means that creation will one day be restored in fullness and glorified. So Easterfest this year was particularly special for our church, because not only did we have a wonderful time celebrating the hope of Christ's resurrection and all that it means for us, but we also had an extra reason to rejoice and celebrate this year. This Easterfest saw us all together in our newly finished festival hall. What for many years had been affectionately called Trinity's Garage. And those of you who have ever been to our church will know that we are a, our, the building uh, before we got our hands on it was a Yamaha ATV dealership. Uh, and the back part of the, uh, the building was the place where they pulled all the, the, the ATVs in to work on them. It really was the garage. It had two garage doors on either side. I was fond of going out and studying in the afternoons, very tall ceilings in this, this back area garage, pull one of the garage doors up and just sit there and, and enjoy the afternoon. We got rid of our garage doors when we did the remodel, which saddened me slightly. But it is a wonderful space, so we had this opportunity to have transform our garage. It was finally transformed into two classrooms, a commercial kitchen, a large eating area, and an outdoor pavilion that looks strikingly like a mead hall. I I refer to it as the mead hall. That day we thanked the Lord for His wonderful gift, dedicated it to His glory, and I gave a brief talk explaining why we should call this wonderful new space a festival hall. I thought it would be appropriate to share with all of you in the close of our conference uh, why that is the case. Here are three reasons why we should be a festal people who have a festival hall. First, and I think you'll see some of the themes that I've already talked about a bunch coming back to play here 
in these three main points. First, festivity is rooted in the good of God's creation. I can't emphasize that enough. Festivity is rooted in the good of God's creation. The philosopher Nietzsche was observant when he said, the trick is not to arrange a festival, but to find people who can enjoy it. It's not to arrange it so that you have games and food and all the rest, but it's to find people who can truly enter into the spirit of what a festival is all about. He was pointing to the reality that festivity is not merely an event with lots of activities. It is also an event with reasons. It is an event in which people express joy in something. But this raises the question, joy in what? What is it that we rejoice in? And Joseph Pieper, in his wonderful little book, In Tune with the World, a theory of festivity, one of those other books that you really should read sometime. I'll make sure that Randy has that uh, in the list. Um, he supplies this wonderful answer. Quote, The longing for joy is nothing but the desire to have a reason and a pretext for joy. When we want to be joyful, what we're longing for is to have a reason for it. This reason, to the extent that it actually exists, precedes joy and is different from it. The reason for joy comes first. The joy comes second. So, remember last night I said that joy has its reasons. Reason comes first and joy is a response to the reason for it. But the reason for joy, although it may be encountered in a thousand concrete forms, is always the same. It's possessing or receiving what one loves, whether actually in the present, hoped for in the future, or remembered in the past. Joy is an expression of love. No one, excuse me, one who loves nothing and nobody cannot possibly rejoice no matter how desperately they crave joy. Joy is the response of a lover receiving what he loves. Such an absolutely key insight that without love there can be no joy. The person who does not love cannot rejoice. I think you can begin to think of why that's the case when you think about the fact that God is the one who loves and rejoices. And we rejoice because we love, are loved by God, but also because we are made in His image and we are made to be lovers as well. Love is the reason we rejoice. St. John Chrysostom captured this in a beautiful phrase. I think I may want this written on my gravestone. Ubi caritas gaudet, ibi est festivitas. And it means, where love rejoices, there is festivity. Where love rejoices, there is festivity. Love, then, is the secret to joy. 
When we love something good, our hearts rejoice in the presence of the Beloved. And this reality points to the foundation of all festivity. Undergirding everything, festivals are rooted in God's love expressed in the goodness of creation. As Pieper notes again, to reduce festivity to the most basic, concise phrase, everything that is, is good. And it is good to exist. For man cannot have the experience of receiving what is loved unless the world and existence as a whole represent something good and therefore beloved to Him. Because God made all things good, loves them and gives them to us, His beloved, as a gift, we have every reason to love them as well. And when our love for God and creation rejoices, we sing and we dance. We eat and we drink. We laugh and we play. A festival is therefore a day devoted to rejoicing in the good of creation. The good of God's love for us. And the fact that He has promised that all things will work together for good to those who love Him. And this is why the Sabbath is the very first festival day. I'd like you to think about that for a moment. I think there's, um, you know, in Reform circles where we think a lot about the Sabbath um, and the importance of observing the Sabbath, I think one of the things that we sometimes miss This is something that I've really wanted to recover in my own church. Especially, we have a lot of college students who really do struggle to keep the Sabbath because Monday is coming. And all of the work that is looming coming up in the the week, they think they can't possibly take a day to put that work aside. So one of my challenges at the beginning is to convince students that the Sabbath is a necessity for them. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. Often in my experience, the way our reforms often talk about the Sabbath as if it were some sort of absolute moral imperative. You must keep the Sabbath. I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. That's true. The Lord tells us that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. But I think the thing that we neglect a lot of times is the reason why. Why? Did God give us a Sabbath in the first place? What is the Sabbath for? Because I think once we understand the reason that the Father gives His Son a Sabbath, we will not not just make room for it in our lives. We will defend it. We will put our lives in the way of those who would try to remove the Sabbath from us. So precious a possession is it for us. We cannot do without a Sabbath. I will not allow anyone to take away my birthright. The Sabbath is the day that culminates God's creation. Six days God labors to create a miraculous, beautiful, technicolored world with every imaginable delight. And on the seventh day, he refrained from his work. Why did God refrain from his work? He didn't do it because he was tired. 
We often think that the Sabbath is a day for rest because we are finite beings and we need to rest. That is true. But remember, God is our example. And God was not resting because He was tired. God was resting because He was delighting and rejoicing in what He had made. The Sabbath was a day to survey, to rejoice in, to delight in the fact that He had said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and then of course, it is not good. Not good, why? Man should not be alone. And then it is very good. The Sabbath is a day for remembering that everything that God made is very good. And we need that. Because we are often consumed with the works of our own hands, which are good. And those works are about acquiring and accomplishing certain ends, things that we want to do. And so when Isaiah in Isaiah, Isaiah admonishes the people of God to refrain from doing their own works and to call the Sabbath a delight. What he is saying is, what you need in order to properly orient your work so that you don't become the kind of people who think that it's all about you and your works, all about the things that you are able to accomplish. You need a day to reorient yourself every seven days. And you need to remember that regardless of what you're able to accomplish in the next six days, everything is good. And it's good not because you make it good. It's good because I made it good, the Lord says. It's good. And you need to rest and stop from your labors and to survey my work and to remember that I've made it all good. And it's good before you even show up. And it will be good when you're gone. You need to remember that I am the one who supplies all good things to enjoy. You need to rest in that. You need to delight in it. Beloved, that's why the Lord gave us the Sabbath. It's a festival day. It's a day to remember all of those things so that when we go forth, we go forth in rest remembering that all the things that God has given us to do, all the good things, are anchored and rooted in the fact that He is good first and that He has given us all of these things to enjoy. That's rest. True rest for the soul. It's the reason we can rejoice, as Peter was talking about. That's the reason. And when we rejoice in that kind of way, it makes even all the hard things that we have to face in the workaday week where we go out into the world, it puts it all into perspective. The Sabbath was the day when God delighted in His work and He found it all good. Likewise, the Sabbath is a day when we rest from our labors, rejoicing in God's goodness, delighting ourselves in the splendor of His work. We are festive because He is festive. And that's what, this, that's what the Sabbath day reminds us of. You know, if that was what we thought about more often when we think about the Sabbath, do you, you realize that would be the we would have that attitude. No one can pry the Sabbath out of my... I have to be dead and buried and I'll have to pry it out of my dead fingers. I'm not going to give this up. 
this is a treasure. And it's God's gift to me. So I'm going to learn how to be festive on his day like he is. So, festivity is rooted in the good of creation because God is good and he creates. Second, a festival is also a joy, is also joy in God's redemptive goodness. Creational goodness and redemptive goodness. Our sin brought suffering and shame into the world and it tarnished God's original goodness. But even in the midst of our sin, God's goodness and love sent a remedy in the person of Jesus who took on flesh and dwelt among us. I think we read John 3.16 sometimes in too spiritual a way. What does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave. He loved what He had made. Men and women, beasts of the earth, mountains and oceans. And He sent His Son to redeem it. To redeem what He had made. He loved the world and therefore He sent His Son. He was not going to let men succeed in their sin. He has taken away our reproach and rejoiced over us as a father did over the prodigal son. Listen to the father's words in Luke chapter 15, verses 21 through 24, that, I, that expresses this redemptive festivity. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, I love that. The son, you know, rehearses his little speech that he's going to give to the father when he's in the pigsty. And then he goes to the father and he rehearses his little speech again. It's twice. You can't, you can't, can't emphasize how important it is that the Bible rarely repeats things in that kind of way. So the son is really thinking about this little speech of restoration. But he doesn't even get it all out. And the first thing that the father says is not directed to the son, it's actually directed to his servants. He ignores <laughs> ignores what the Son is saying. He says, the Father said, but the Father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on Him. And bring, put a ring on His hand and shoes on His feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. In short, let us be festive. Why? For my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is now found. And they began to celebrate. Isn't it interesting that Zephaniah says something very similar in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18? The Lord your God is in your midst, the prophet writes, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at, the time, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. 
Do you see what's the roots of the festival here in Zephaniah? Why is it that he gathers those who mourn for the festival so that they will no longer suffer reproach? It's because the Lord is the one who rejoices over his people with gladness. He is the one who quiets us with his love. He is the one who exults over us with singing. That's the source of the festival. It's God's delight in us, His people. I'm going to talk more about this in the sermon. And that's why we rejoice. It's because God is festive, and He's festive over the fact that we once who were covered in shame and lost like the prodigal son have now been restored and brought home. We belong to Him and the Father's rejoicing, and so we enter into the Father's joy. One more, one more verse, set of verses from Hebrews chapter 12. You all know Hebrews 12, I know. It's the great passage about uh, after chapter 11, which is the heroes of the faith. Then chapter 12 begins by being, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know that passage. Well, it goes on to talk about God's loving discipline of his children. Puts it all in this kind of uh, athletic context. Running a race. And the father is the one who is like the great coach. He is the discipliner of those who belong to him, his sons. Those who are not, if if you're not disciplined, you're not a son. So when God, it's a sign of God's love that he disciplines. And we tend to sometimes think of discipline as if it were a form of um, punishment. But that's not at all what Hebrews is talking about. Discipline is training. And we find out as we go back down through Hebrews 12 that the reason the Father is training His Son is so that we can share in His holiness. We can share in His glory. We can be like Him. That's why the Father exercises His children. For glory. It's training in glory. That's what discipline is about. That's what discipline ought to be in our homes, too, with our own children. The way we think about discipline should be training for glory. And the aroma or the atmosphere of our discipline should be very clearly inculcating that in our children. It's not punishment. It's a father loving his son or his daughter so that they grow up and to be glorious. Like a mature athlete who is able to do extraordinary feats of prowess because they've been well trained. And at the end of, this is what the passage is leading to, at the end of chapter 12, it shows us what it's all for. What this whole new covenant is all about. And it contrasts it with the old covenant. It's not by accident that it comes at the end of a a section on training and discipline. It's giving us the ultimate destination and purpose. Let me read for you the passage. Listen to the contrast. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice 
whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The glory of the Lord and smoke on the mountain, His holiness, was so terrifying that Israel could only hear the ten words that God gave, and then they said, that's enough. We can't bear it anymore. Moses, you go up and speak to God and hear what He says and come down and report it to us and we'll do it. But no more God speaking to us. And then when Moses went up into the presence of the Lord and saw His glory and His holiness, when Moses came back down the mountain, his face shone with such a glory that Israel couldn't bear to look on that either. And so they had to veil Moses' face because it was too powerful. Its glory was too intense. They couldn't bear it. That's the story of the Old Covenant. God's glory, His beauty, His holiness is a threat because of Israel's sin. They can't bear it. But notice the contrast. But you, speaking to all those who are part now of the New Covenant, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We've come to the same God. The God who is the judge of all. But this time, now, because of Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant with better blood enacted on better promises, all of these things are now true. And because they are true, when we come to this God now, it's not the same kind of fear that Israel experienced when we come to the mountain. Now we come to Mount Zion and it is a festal gathering. A gathering of joy. A gathering of celebration in which the God of all no longer stands in judgment over us because of our sin, but stands as judge to vindicate us. Remember Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer, of course, is nobody. Because God is the one. Jesus is the one who justifies. No one can bring an accusation. That's why God, as judge in the New Covenant, is great news. When God judges, we're innocent. And because we're innocent, we can say hallelujah. And we can rejoice with confidence. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Do you know it in the bones of your being? If you do, you cannot help but rejoice and be festive. Secondly, then, festivity is rejoicing in God's redemptive grace. But there's still one more thing. Third, finally, festivity is also 
Joy of the Father's love that makes us ambassadors of reconciliation to the world. Festivity is also mission. Festivity is also our mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-21. through 21. We are ambassadors for Christ, ministers of His reconciliation, festival agents because we are inviting the world to the festival. Therefore, festivity is the heart of Christian mission as well. We are the servants of the Father that the Father has sent out into the highways and to the byways, inviting those who mourn to the wedding feast. Luke 14, 16-24. We are not inviting them to join in something that we have done, but to join in our festival praise and thanksgiving of His goodness and His mercy. God has set the table. We are His messengers, inviting men and women to the feast. And this is the reason why in our church, I don't know if this is your practice at all, but in our church, every Easter season, before the Lord's Supper, we say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, the feast is for us. And so we're bidden to come and to rejoice. I think often in our world, if you think about the things we've talked about over the past couple of days, a world that is languishing under the hopelessness and futility of ascidia, for instance, slothfulness. The testimony of God's people as a festive people is a powerful powerful source of witness. Whenever people see joy, they automatically know that there must be a reason for it. That's the reality. If you have joy, there has to be a reason. So the joy automatically leads to the reason. Joy is the thing that people experience and see and they say, why, why is it that these families, these individuals, these people, even in the midst of difficulty and trial, still celebrate and are festive and they rejoice. Why is that? That doesn't make any sense. We have no reason to rejoice. Secularist knows that. So why are God's people rejoicing? So, it is absolutely true that our festivals are powerful sources of witness. Throwing parties and then inviting your neighbors over in order to experience that is how men and women taste and see how gracious the Lord is. They begin to see and understand something about the goodness of creation and the fact that God is redeeming His creation and giving His sinful people reason to hope that all will be made well. And when men and women experience that, they ask questions in a very deep way. Because it's not theoretical. It's actual. So never underestimate 
the power of inviting people over to your home to sit at your table to experience the joy of the Lord for themselves. Your festal hall to your church, wherever God's people gather, they are bearing testimony. I think one of the reasons why Christian witness has often suffered is because a lot of secularists can't imagine being like us. Why would I join them? They're a gloomy, world-denying, grumpy people. And if that is truly our demeanor, we have reason to ask, why would they want to join us? Thankfully, they're not joining us. But we are God's witnesses. And so how we live in the world matters to what the world sees of Christ. We are His hands and feet. Our love for one another, our own Lord said, was the way that men would know that we are His disciples. Right? Joy is rooted in the, in the beloved receiving, the lover receiving the beloved, loving. Loving one another, loving God, loving the world that he's given us. So, this is the reason, of course, why our tables have always, in the Christian tradition, have always been shaped by the Lord's table. His is the table, his table we are invited to, and then therefore we go out and invite the world to our tables so that they can also taste and see what we have experienced. Here's the conclusion. A festival, God be praised, isn't something that we make or invent. A festival is not something that we make or invent. A festival isn't a means to accomplish something that we want, and therefore it is not utilitarian. A festival is rather something that we do because of what has already been done. It's being glad and merry because of God, because He is good, and because of what He has done for us. It's an invitation to enter into His joy. His joy always comes first. Ours always comes second. And it's always a response to His. Like God's people of old, we need to learn how to celebrate and to raise the festal shout because our Father is good and He is good all the time. I want to leave you with a final set of verses. These are some of my favorite from the entire Bible. Psalm 89, verses 15 and 16. Listen to these. They're magnificent. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of Your face, who exult in Your name all the day, and in Your righteousness are exalted. You know how Hebrew poetry works. It often works in parallelisms. Where you get one line, and then you get a secondary line, which is a comment, commentary on the first line. And in this, these two verses, we have two sets of parallels. 
The first line. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. And the second line, which explains it. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of Your face. What does it mean to raise a festal shout? It means to walk in the light of the Lord's face. To know that His light shines upon you. That He is delighted and pleased and rejoices over you. And that's why you raise the festal shout. Because you walk in the light of the Lord's face. Second parallel. Who exult in Your name all the day. Second line, helping to explain it. And in Your righteousness are exalted. Because we exult in the Lord's name all the day, the Lord is the one who exalts His people, who makes it possible for them to share His righteousness. And in your righteousness are exalted. We exalt the Lord's name. And the Lord is the one in His righteousness who exalts us. This helps us to understand the festival shout. This is why we do it. Blessed are the people who know the festival shout. Beloved, do you know that shout? Do you know it in your own lives? Is it part of your home? Is it part of your church? Is it part of your communal life together? Do you raise the festal shout? And importantly, do you know the reasons why you should? So I hope that... that over this past couple of days, what I've wanted to do is to elucidate, to bring before you the reasons for why we have reason to shout. Why we have reason to rejoice. It is our inheritance as the people of God, God's free gifts. I am agreed with C.S. Lewis that our problem is not that we take pleasure too much, it's that we take it too little. We don't really know how to celebrate. One of the things that my wife and I learned when we started celebrating the 12 days of Christmas after, celebrate, after observing Advent for the whole season of Advent, which is much longer, we learned that it's hard to celebrate for 12 days. It requires a lot of concentration and hard work, preparation, dedication, diligence, It's not something you can do just flying by the seat of your pants. Our kids were kind of disappointed with our first celebration of Christmas over 12 days because they liked Advent. They thought Advent was much more exciting. It was very structured and so forth. My wife and I were thinking, okay, so how are we going to really spread this festival out for 12 days? Well, we've worked at it little by little by little by little. And now the 12 days of Christmas is a real festival time for our family. And we love taking that time to just luxuriate and bask in the Lord's goodness to us. But it's not easy. It requires discipline and diligence. That's what we have to do as God's people. We have to train ourselves to be festive. And that, of course, starts in our own hearts by refusing to complain and grumble and instead to give thanks and to rejoice in our personal lives, in our homes, and in our churches. And then to work that out and actually to train ourselves how to celebrate. A huge portion of Israel's calendar was dedicated to festivals. They had to learn how to do this. 
They had to, they had to learn how to do this. The reason they did it is because the Lord was good and gracious and delivered them, and he wanted them to enter into his joy, and they needed to set aside a time, set time aside, large chunks of time aside, to discipline themselves yearly in remembering God's goodness and celebrating it. We need to do that a lot more. And I think if we do that, our testimony to the world will grow in its potency. And people will come to the Lord saying, who are these people? I want to hear more about this God that they serve. Because this is incredible. They know how to have the best time in the world. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that our joy is a response to yours. We do not have the resources in ourselves, Father, to rejoice as we ought. And so thank you for giving us your own spirit who bears witness that we belong to you. It is the manifestation of your love poured out in our hearts. Father, would you teach us to be a people who learn how to rejoice and be festive because we meditate on the reasons that we have to be glad and to rejoice. Thank you that you have secured all of these things for us. You have set our feet in a broad place and you have filled our mouths with good things and with your praises. We ask that you would help us that we might bear testimony to the world of your goodness and that we might live our whole lives until the very last day and then into the new heavens and the new earth, deeply in love with your world that you have given and with you, the giver of all good gifts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.